You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Cellar Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99. I'm here, as always, with my partner, Mr. Dan Natterman, our producer, Periel Ashenbrand. I can't remember. Good how job. How good. Say. So good. Uh, we, this is, now, this is, a big, this is a, big, uh, a big day here. First of all, we have our famous booker, the most feared woman in comedy, Esti Adoram, is here. And an actress. And actress. <laughs> with a growing IMDb page. Uh, we have Ricky Velez, who has a nightly show on Comedy Central. He's from Queens. He may re- be regularly seen at the Comedy Cellar, and he's a pretty new dad. Yeah. So I bond with him on that. And kind of the, not kind of, the guest of honor, Mr. Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow is the director of The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, and Trainwreck, and an upcoming film starring Pete Davidson, the aforementioned Ricky Velez, and Bill Burr. He is the producer of Gary Goldman's HBO special, The Great Depression, Superbad, Girls, Anchorman, Anchorman, and Crashing. He is a stand-up comedian who had a Netflix special last year, and he has a new book coming out called It's Gary Shandling's Book which is kind of a companion to the four-hour documentary, correct? That is true, yes. Well, welcome, Judd Apatow. Thank you. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff in the documentary. People were taking pictures of the screen because we would show his journals and all of these interesting ideas about writing and spirituality, and it felt like I should put that somewhere so people could just have it. And I also felt like if I don't put it in a book, people are going to put it in the garbage, and I'm a hoarder. And I, I always feel bad when people throw things out. And I thought, wouldn't it be sad if just all this stuff just disappeared into a storage facility and was gone forever? Is, is part of being a hoarder, you think, being very sentimental about things? I think it's probably a, a mental illness in, in some way. <laughs> because I feel it about everything. I feel it when I'm eating at a restaurant. Sometimes when I order, I feel bad about everything I didn't order. Like it's not just stuff. <laughs> how would you, That's not sentimental. How would you contrast your hoarding with, uh, say, Gilbert Godfrey, who has uh, piles of hotel room soap under his bed? Well, I always say that's another level. Yeah, that's that's a, that's that goes pretty far because he's like melting soaps into larger soaps, uh, <laughs> and I always say about my stuff because I you know collect everything. It's not hoarding if your shit is awesome. But what and else so, do you hoard? Uh, well, you know, I have an autograph collection. I, you know, I keep mementos. Yeah, that things. does seem like a different than Gilbert, who I think it's a, it's an issue of he's trying to save money on shampoo. Like if I have a great picture with Dan Natterman, I'll save it. Oh, that is hoarding. I won't toss it. I will keep my Dan Natterman. <laughs> well, photo. You, imagine any photo you have with me would be uh, would be like on Instagram or would be digital. Uh, that that's true. I, I have, have, have two hundred thousand photos on Instagram, and you know, once my daughter, when she was like ten. She asked me to autograph DVDs of all my movies, and she put them up on eBay, and no one bid on any of them. Oh my god! And she learned the lack of interest in daddy in <laughs> one painful moment. Why was she hustling you though? <laughs> she can't just ask you for allowance, Judge. She has to go find a way. 
<laughs> you said interesting something interesting last night. I, I saw you said at the underground how your daughter, people come up to you in the street and go, oh my God, I love you, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. And then afterwards your daughter's like, oh my God, you're the... Like completely does not think you're cool. Yeah, I don't think anybody's kids think they're cool. I saw Springsteen doing an interview the other day on CBS and he just said his kids are so not into anything that he's ever done. I don't think anyone's kids like it because they're around it their whole life and they're just over it. I don't think anyone in my family watched my stand-up special. Not one of them. <laughs> Maud makes a point of never seeing funny people. She is in funny people and her running gag is that she's never seen it. And sometimes when we're watching TV, she's like, hey, you want to watch 90 Day Fiance? And I'll go, yeah, let's watch it. And I'll just put on funny people. <laughs> and then she always leaves the room. Well, if your kids don't think you're cool, then imagine Noam's kids when they get older. <laughs> oh, I'm not cool. Uh, it, but my wife, my wife doesn't think anything I do is worth anything. I mean, I guess you just don't respect the person who takes out your trash. I, I don't know what it is, but there's like nothing I can do that impresses my wife at all. So, Keep, I mean, keeps I, you on your toes, keeps you on your game. At yeah. what age do our kids stop thinking we're cool? Because when they're little, like they think we're the greatest thing in the world. So there's got to be a, sw a devastating switch at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At like 12, right. the whole thing just flips. It's right when they find <laughs> out Santa's not real. Right. <laughs> they find out you've just been lying to them for year years. It's I can't imagine that. Do your kids still find you cool? Because they're young. Yeah, I think my kids, my kids actually do find daddy cool right now. Yeah. I'm waiting for it to end, yeah. Especially yeah. My, my middle son, he really thinks daddy's the coolest. <laughs> my son adores me. I'm going to be devastated when if that... Like my, my, my son will just blurt out at dinner out of nowhere, when I grow up, I want to be just like daddy. Wow. Oh, I, I mean, what, you can't even imagine how that makes somebody feel. You know, if you're, I mean, oh, it's the best. Well, he'll stop saying it, but he'll still do it. Hopefully. He'll, uh, he'll, <laughs> exactly. he'll tell you to screw off, but then still open up a comedy club. Hopefully yeah. it'll be better than daddy. <laughs> so, Judd, there's something that, that um, I think it's related. There's something that, I, that you had said one time that I always thought was a real insight into your personality, which was that when you used to watch SNL, because you thought that you might never get another chance to see these episodes, pre-VCR days, whatever it was, that you would actually transcribe the entire episode. Did I have that right? Well, sections of it, yeah. I would tape it with an audio recorder because... We didn't understand when things would re-air back then. So if Saturday Night Live was on, you didn't know when the Steve Martin episode would be on again or ever. It was a very random, mysterious thing, and there was no way to ask anybody. There was no internet. I mean, were you going to write a letter to NBC and go, when does the Steve Martin episode re-air? So I used to tape them with a tape recorder, and sometimes I would, I would write out what, what the sketch was, I think because I was just trying to figure out why it was good. Like, why is Bill Murray talking about his Oscar predictions so funny? And how old were you at this time? I mean, I guess I probably was like 10. That's astounding to me. Yeah, that's uh, different. I, I, mean, it, <laughs> I mean, that just shows a level of involvement and love for this stuff that probably defines everything that's come after. I mean, you never stop working. You have a book, then a documentary, then another documentary, and then you're doing stand-up, then you're doing a movie. I'm like, and you have kids, and you have a family. I don't know, I don't understand. I just want to sit home and do nothing. I just want to... It's probably the equivalent of you noodling on the guitar. Like, you will never stop doing that. No. And it's fun, and it's endlessly fascinating. So to me, it's like that. It's not work. None of it is work. Yeah, but no, weren't you saying just the other night that, it, uh, you know, if it weren't for, you know, without the booty, 
to uh, motivate you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's why he plays the guitar. It's not what I said not was, <laughs> well, that was a big move. What I said was that, like, I'd been, I'd been at work all day, and then I had to play that night. I'd been at work already since 2 in the afternoon. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to blow off the gig tonight. I'm going home. And I said, in the old days, if there was any, even the possibility of having sex, some, I would have stuck it out just, yes. you know, <laughs> on the off chance. I said, when, when that's off the table, just playing the gig at that level of exhaustion just wasn't worth it for me. You know, when you, it's like low T. I don't know what it is. It just, but it, cha it changes everything. I like having low T. It's kept me out of trouble. It does keep you out of trouble. Could, you, know, could, you want the low T, get it lower. I take medication to lower the T. <laughs> Well, Ricky's a young married guy. Do you think you got what it takes to go to the distance like Judd does in a, in, in a showbiz marriage? Uh, well, she's not in showbiz, so I think that also makes it easier. Um, but yeah, I would say that's why I married her because I thought we have a chance. Fair enough. But you're <laughs> such a young, handsome guy, and you're succeeding now. Yeah, but I actually—that was one thing when I started comedy that I promised myself I would never do. I never slept with any of the audience members, and I also never slept with waitresses. I thought it was just bad business and not smart. And uh, staying away from it has been nothing but good for me. And I've seen a, it ruin a lot of other people. Oh, but you missed a lot. I did, but at the same time, there's something fun to being like, oh, have a great night. <laughs> Go home. Like, I just don't do it. Springsteen wrote songs about sleeping with waitresses, you know? Uh, Sandy, the waitress I've been seeing. Lost her. Anyway. You should have been here last night. Estee, in the mic. In the mic. Estee, in the mic. Chris was talking about my relationship? No. Oh. Oh, being swore, in it. He swore off that he never... Uh, try to have sex with any of the waitresses. Who said and, this, Chris Stefano? Yeah, and th but th that's only because he comes with a girl. He comes right. ready just in case. Right. But Before, we're going we're yeah. to jump into issues and stuff, but let's let's first of all uh, talk about Judd's book and then talk about the Judd's movie with Pete. Okay. And Dan Natterman. What? Dan, small role. Dan, is it a small role that still it exists? It's still, <laughs> it's still in the cut, Dan. It's still in the it cut. It would be hard to cut that out, I would think, because isn't it like, don't you cut back between me and Burr and Yes, Pete you're and... part of something that cannot be removed. <clears throat> now, this, yeah. this, is, this is a tremendous... <laughs> like your spots at the cellar. <laughs> <laughs> this is a tremendous labor of love. Yes. The book you're talking about. Um, and, uh, well, tell us about that. Like, what, what, what was it about him that meant so much to you well the you know the whole relationship with gary is almost cosmic in nature i met him when i was 15 or 16 years old i interviewed him for my high school radio station i was doing interviews with comedians because i just wanted to meet them and this was before the internet and podcasts and there was no way to even learn what comedians do or how they think so i would just call them up and pretend it was a real radio station and hunt them down to talk to them you have a book of these interviews right sick in the head sick yeah. in the head is uh, you know has all of those uh, still available and uh so i met gary then and then i met him again when i was 20 or 21 when i was doing stand-up and i wrote jokes for him for the grammys and then he hired me on the larry sanders show he asked me to direct the larry sanders show he gave me every big break but in addition to that he started talking to me about buddhism and his spiritual beliefs so you know he really was uh, an important figure in just all of my development as a person, and I felt like I learned a lot from him directly, but I also learned from watching the mistakes he made. I saw the torture he was in uh, in his life with just the way he approached his work. and What kind of mistakes? I think that he was always very highly sensitive. His bar for the, the work was really high, but he also didn't seem to have an understanding of emotionally what people were giving to him 
to help him succeed. You know, there's a lot of people, when they do creative work, you can feel that their belief is, if this isn't great, I will die. And it's just connected to some wound or their self-esteem. And it makes the whole process really high stakes and painful. Because if you give Gary a script and it's mediocre, it's not just like, oh, we got to fix this. It's like, you're trying to destroy me. And there's something broken there. Right. And I think he liked me because I was able to talk about these issues directly with him and was just a force for how do, how do we do this work in a healthy way and not be insane? You know, how, how do we punch us up and not be miserable and terrified? And, and I think, you know, you've, you know, you see the people at the club. There are people who work from that broken place and there are people who try to work from a, a, a healthy place. And so I learned ev everything from him. And when he died, someone had to go through his stuff. There weren't a lot of super close intimates. And suddenly I'm just going through boxes in his house. And I thought, well, there's a, there's a great documentary here. And also people need to see this. His, his journals are very inspiring because he's not just trashing people and complaining. He's actually talking himself off the ledge. Most of his journals are just him saying, breathe, let go, drop the story, love more give more and clearly he's so neurotic that he needs to have a voice say that to him but I, I just got inspired I thought oh he was even an even better guy than I thought after reading 30 years of diaries and that's pretty rare were you, were you intimate um, in a friendship kind of way like you had yeah. dinners so you were oh absolutely for, for decades and in some ways I, I since I met him when I was so young and he didn't have kids, I thought, I wonder if Gary feels fatherly to me. And after he died, people said that that was the case. And I also thought that his mom was so neurotic with him. You know, after his brother died when he, he was a kid. But cystic fibrosis? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when he was 10, the brother was 13. And I think she really engulfed him and smothered him after that. And when his brother died, the, the parents kind of sent him to the grandparents and didn't really ever talk about it. Uh, for the first few weeks and then for the rest of his childhood it really wasn't something that they engaged in discussing and sometimes I thought Gary's nice to me and other people because he's trying to prove that the way he wished his parents treated him was possible does that make sense like sure like I always thought he was trying to treat me the way he wished his mom treated him unconsciously like you could be nice and you could be giving and uh, you could, you know, not expect so much. This is all, by the way, outside of working on the show. You know, when you worked on the show, you know, you were jumping into a, the frying pan. But when he wasn't doing the show, he was a very uh, kind, giving person. What, what you're saying rings true to me because I notice kind of two types of people that I've met. Some people who just carry on the mistakes of whatever happened to them, the cycle, and other people who react very strongly against whatever it was, and then they try to very much to do the opposite. So you're describing him as someone who tried to do the opposite. Like my father always talked about how his mother, as he knew my, my grandmother, would always lie to him. Just always, he never knew what was true. So he never lied to me. Yeah, It was very important to him, even about things he probably should have lied to me about. Sure, it becomes an obsession. And yeah. I think for Gary, that might have been honesty because people weren't honest about it when his brother died and i couldn't quite get the story exactly right but it's people seem to indicate that when his brother died they didn't even really tell him he had to figure it out 
um, that he was just sent to his grandparents and no one sat him down for a while. And also presence, the idea of being honest and present and speaking the truth and love without strings attached. So he became obsessed with it. And you, you could look at the Larry Sanders show as a, creating a character that's the worst part of yourself and mocking it. Like, here's the part of Gary that's an egomaniac that wants to succeed above everything, above relationships, and I don't like this part of me, so I'm gonna personify it and then say, isn't this stupid? That was part of the genius of the show, right? To, in a certain way, be able to portray yourself like that. Yeah, and he always used to say, I'm not exactly like Larry Sanders because Larry Sanders couldn't write the Larry Sanders right, show. Right, exactly. He wouldn't have that way to well, observe himself. So, But Gary certainly was split. I mean, he definitely was like this sweet giving person and then this incredibly paralyzed, neurotic person at times. So this is going to maybe sound corny, but... I'm thinking it that he's he's really I mean he'll never know how lucky he was to have a friend like you yeah. so, someone who's uh worthy who, whose work product is worthy of the world finding out about it and probably there's many people like that and we never find out about it but he has someone who loved him as much as you and you're putting a lot of time and risking money and all this stuff to get it out there and he's very very his family everybody's very very lucky that you're that they had you. Well, one one thing about my relationship with Gary was, uh, I think that we did that for each other when he was around. You know, there were a lot of opportunities to honor Gary, to talk about Gary. In the years when he stopped working, I always just talked about how so much of modern comedy came from things that Gary did, and he was always there for me. If I had a, a movie. He would read the first draft. He would read the later draft. He'd come to the table read. He'd watch the early cuts. And he would pitch me jokes and fixes very aggressively, not like half-assed. He'd really uh, think about it. Was, and, he, was he blunt with you if he yeah. didn't like He was. And you appreciated that? Or is that, that can be awkward sometimes, right? Well, I mean, Gary had a funny way about him because he'd be very direct, but he'd be like, John, you, you know what to do. You know what. Right, you know what we're, you know what the problem is, right? <laughs> and, and like when we did the forty-year-old virgin, I always tell the story. But he's like, you got to show him having sex. You got to <laughs> show it at the end. Like you can't do this movie. And, and he said, and you got to show that it's about that his sex is better than his friend's sex because he's in love, and everyone else has all these crazy relationships, but he's in love. So you have to show that his sex is better because it's about love. And I'm like, Gary, I can't show the sex. I can't show it. He's like, you gotta show it. You gotta, you gotta figure it out. And, and he would leave messages on my machine like, did you figure it out? Did you figure out? You gotta show it. And I found it in his notes. It's in the book. I found the piece of paper where he wrote this to himself, like to remind himself to tell me, like it's about love. And then one day Carell thought of it. He's like, maybe I just like suddenly sing a song. And that's how we thought of it because Gary wouldn't stop criticizing us. So he was that kind of So friend. you're touching on another, it's, it's a little jumping around, but it's something I, I've thought about before, which is that on your way up, you have elders and people who are much more successful than you are. And they find it easy to tell you you're a schmuck or that you're doing something wrong. Then when you get to be the Judd Apatow that you are today, almost everybody's below you on that scale. And that's got to distort the amount of truth or at least you have to worry about distorting the amount of truth that comes your way in terms of what people tell you about how the script is, how the jokes are, whatever it is. Do you deal with that? Do you think about that? 
My wife always talks about that. She's just like, be careful. You don't have yes men around you. You need people to be honest with you. And so, you know, I, I just finished this movie with Pete Davidson and Ricky and... You know, and Adam. And uh, Tim. <laughs> He's all over that. And, uh, you know, I'll show it to, you know, Eric Roth, who, who wrote Forrest Gump, and I'll show James Brooks. I still, you know, seek out He's, those people great. who are willing to watch... You know, Ron Howard came to the last movie and gave me very thoughtful notes. So, so you still need to, you still need to try to find those 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 top dogs, right? It's it's you can't really get it from the people. You can, but you have to create an environment where when you show Natterman, he's going to tell you the truth. Um, yeah, but like I could never tell you. Like I would but, have difficulty doing yeah, so. But I'll tell you one one one. If it's bad, it's hard to tell people. One, I think if it's like in the middle and like there are fixes, but when someone shows you something and it's just bad and it's unfixable, you almost have to say you nailed it because there's <laughs> you can't really you? break someone's heart. I, mean, I had one. Li- I had one little note from Birbiglia one time after I saw the the trial run of his show. Yeah, and I spent like six hours rehearsing like how am I going to say this, and then I finally said it to him. He goes, Yeah, yeah, my managers told me the same thing. Yes. Like it was nothing. But that's but, the one thing about stand up is we don't have that problem in the stand-up context because the audience is more than happy to tell you sure. what they think of you. Yes. And, you, you know, you go up and with all that you've done and this and that, but if, if the joke's not funny, they're, they're not going to give you a freebie. Maybe a little bit extra they'll give you because you're you, but not that much. For three minutes. Yeah. yeah. And then and Like then, last night, I got such huge applause on the last uh, show at, at the cellar I did last night. And, and then I just, you know, I don't want the first joke to do that well because I, I kind of can't keep up the level of the excitement. Yeah. And I'm also trying new jokes. So I almost have to let the first one be a six to kind of reset the room, you know, and the, the, the hosts as a joke like to give me the greatest intro, like Groucho Marx just walked into the club to like make me dig out from the <laughs> expectation that they've created. <laughs> Before we move away from the book, are we on? We're filming this, so I don't know. If you see the book, but this I had the same reaction to when I saw this that I did to seeing the Gary Shandling documentary, and I think I said it to you at the time. It was like it is so clear it's a labor of love. This is a beautiful, beautiful. I mean, it's really, it's a beautiful book. So you know, anybody who's interested in that sort of thing is going well, to find this. If you're interested in comedy or art yeah. or spirituality, it, it, you don't really need to know Gary to get a lot out of it because all the lessons I learned from Gary are in the book and that's why I put it together. Because there's a great quote I always mention where Gary said, in the book, it's just in his journal one day, for no reason he wrote, maybe your comedy is a gift to be given to people to help them through this impossible life with you expecting nothing in return. And I, you know, there's a lot of that type of philosophy, which I think if you were a young comic, it would change your life if you really soaked in the things that he learned. You're telling Dan that about 30 well, years too late. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about expecting nothing in return. That's where you lost me. Yeah. You'd be so happy well, who, now because you've gotten nothing in who, return. Uh, yeah, who, who, who really expects <laughs> nothing in return? Among, I mean, among, among emotionally, like your ego, like doing it to give, not just to get but jacked the, the, up the, on your self love. But the ego is. To me, the biggest thing, you know, the, I mean, <laughs> with comedians, yes, I yeah. think, you know, to, yes, yeah, I'm sorry, just talk closer to the mic. You don't want to sound. Uh, we yeah, all want to yeah, make yeah. money if we can, yes, but what's even true. more important is the last thing we, we if we had a choice between being rich and and not respected, mm-hmm. or being just making a living and being super respected, most of us I think would choose the latter. Yes, I think it's the ego that that is. There's healthy ego. I mean, you can have self-esteem, do your work, have the audience appreciate it, and 
and not be servicing your ego all the time. And I think we all know the people that seem solid, right? And the people that seem on edge and unable to ever feed their ego enough. Like there's no amount of appreciation I can get that will make me like well, myself. I, I have oh, I mean, like I, a wait. set point of appreciation where if, it, if the audience is laughing too much, I feel uneasy. Like this is too much... I have an idea, yes. Dan. Power. Let's play a game. I'll start. I'll yeah. say I'll say a person who seems solid, yeah. and then you seem a person who seems not solid. Go ahead. Ray Romano <laughs> seems very solid to me. Go ahead. No, you mean in I'm, terms I'm, of what? <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of friendship game. <laughs> All right. So and, and and you know, there's clips here from from the actual. There's graphics here from the actual diaries. He has nice did, did you know these journals existed? You know, he told me that he had kept journals, but I had never looked at any of them. And he he was... It's 30, 30 years of journals, right? Yeah, so it starts when he's not funny. That's what's most interesting, is at the very beginning, it's about him trying to get into the comedy store, and it's him journaling about Mitzi telling him he's not funny, and letters home <laughs> to his parents going, Mitzi doesn't like me. And, and then he has this near-death experience where he gets hit by a car, and he says that he leaves his body, and he hears a voice say, do you want to continue leading Gary Shandling's life. And he said from that point on, he, he, he gave up being a sitcom writer and he decided to go after his dream with, with much more energy. But he also knew that there was something after this life, that there's more going on. So throughout his life, he had a weird lack of fear of death because he, he really believed that he had seen it. And I, and I said to him, I go, but isn't that like a dream? Isn't that just something that happens when you're... Unconscious. Why don't you just let it slide, Judd? Yeah, because I, <laughs> I needed to know. I said, maybe you can't you're just, just a- have yes men around. Yeah. Here. <laughs> exactly. Is it, the, is it the anesthesia or something? And he said, "You, I really know. I, I can't explain it to you. Like but I know it, the difference it, between what you're talking about and what I went through. I mean, it's it's, it's such a blessing to to have that. You know, even if it's yeah. even if it's not true." Yeah, there's, there's not much to be gained by trying to piss on it, Judd, and say. <laughs> I, I, needed, I needed to fact check it. I needed to uh, do my, you know, Pendulette bullshit test. Although I tend to agree with you, I think it's just how the mind, you know, the mind releases endorphins or something, and and, and yeah, of course. Um, so didn't didn't Mitzi tell him? And this is like my worst nightmare as a club owner. Didn't Mitzi tell him? I mean, um, uh, Gary, I think you're you should stick to writing rather yes. than performing. Yes. And then what he did is. He went and he just performed at all these like little weird crappy clubs in the valley. And for a year, he just didn't go back. And then he came back strong. And then she let him in. It, it always occurs to me that I think this is true, that the comedians somehow think that the club owner has some kind of insight. Agenda. Or no, insight. Like, like no. what the hell does Mitzi know about whether he, he belongs in front of Wait. the camera or behind the camera more than anyone else more than anyone in the audience would know. Listen, Lucian they, did the same thing. Remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I would and never. I would never. No. Yeah, some. I mean, some of the bookers think their job is to groom. No. And you know, Mitzi, I think probably had incredible taste, but also gave some famously terrible advice that people still laugh about. You know, she'll tell someone like, "You should have a puppet," or you know, like <laughs> you, you, you always hear those stories. You know, and um, but at the same time, if you look at all the people she supported, it's an enormous amount of like the greats. Yeah, here too, you know, yeah. the, the, the greats come through. And I just think that um, because they're the greats, most of them were unstoppable forces. Yes. And if I hadn't been here, if Esty hadn't been here, if my father hadn't been here, um, I mean, Eddie Murphy was gonna rise 
to the top. It was no great genius. I mean, probably, you know, no great genius at the comic strip to notice that Eddie Murphy was one of the most talented people ever to walk the earth, right? Yeah, but there were years like at the comedy store where it was just booked very badly, you yeah. know, and then suddenly, you know. But you know why that happens is because they start they start believing their own insight into comedy or they want to yes. they want to teach rather or than they just have bad taste just someone's got bad like adam who 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 books it now he just has really good taste and suddenly the place is packed because it just yeah adam's really here's good. the difference between but you just listen to the audience mostly i really yeah. don't think there's what the difference between you and and your average club owner is yeah is you don't give a fuck about or at least you didn't about stand up you tripped and fell into this you you were you were a music guy. Yeah, but you're, he's also an owner that you see in the club, which is very rare. Well, he likes to get. Yeah, he likes to talk politics, and yeah, he likes. You know, the truth is, Noam is not that into stand up. But Esty is. Well, Esty may be. the taste to say this is the lineups is the whole club. But the point is, Noam, right? it, Noam's no. ego does not no. rest on his knowledge of stand up. But but let me say, it's it's not a, it's not that you're right about what your stand up is not like my my thing. But that's not what's going on because there's there's been more than once that I've seen a comedian that I didn't care for, but I noticed they're killing, and I'm like, well, you know, who am I? You know, like they're killing, and 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 so we I say book them. But that's not how this, I don't believe that that's how the seller works. I think you have a gatekeeper who has fantastic taste because this country is filled with terrible comics who could kill at the seller and they don't work at the seller. Like I don't, I never come in here and go, that comedian is terrible, but I guess they're booking him or her because they're killing. Those people aren't in the club. I don't know. Behind your back, SD is protecting you. What do you think, SD? Because I, I, it seems to me when somebody's a hack, uh, they don't usually do that well. No, and, that's, that's wrong. You haven't been on the road. At the no. cellar, I'm talking about. No, no, I understand yeah. that. At the cellar. Yeah. At the cellar. Well, well, what do you think, I see? I, I don't know. I just get the instinct and I listen and I watch the audience and the content of, of whatever they're talking about. And if I'm not embarrassed, they're good. <laughs> I mean, well, there was, there was I, taste. I was, I, I was it early. Taste. I, I don't want to... To be, I think at to pretend that I know more than anybody else, I don't. But I've been doing it for so long that I have an instinct about it now. No. Ricky, you were about to say something. I think at the cellar as well. Like, I mean, there's a lineup. You're in between two people usually most of the time. So if you can't survive in that, you don't last. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not an easy lineup to sit in. Well, but I don't agree. There's that some people that are really hard to follow. There's just. Be- Go on, no. People say that about certain people, and with some people it's um, true, like like a Greer, or then Kit would, would say, I don't want to follow Lenny because Lenny's killing now, or mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I said, just rise to the occasion, and they all do because they, they've got it. They've got it to begin with. And so... You know who's hard to follow? Mulaney. Yeah. 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 You know, there's certain people that are hard to follow because... You know they're brilliant and they're so self-assured, but they have such a mastery of the craft that they can reveal everything that's wrong with you when you're on after them. And I always feel like Mulaney's the one where you just go, "This is like it's Ock Perlman coming on," and then you come on yeah. with your fiddle and you're, <laughs> you're trying to like sound kind of fun, but really someone just showed you how it's done. But Mulaney displayed the same type of a growth. Yes. He, he wasn't like that when he started. Oh, I'm sure. You know? yes. yeah. And so all of them, Lenny, 
If you listen to Lenny now, the difference between Lenny two years ago and today, there's th yes. something happens, you know? Oh. And, and, uh, but Esty will, will tell you that when my father was alive and he was um, involved in every single decision in detail, his attitude was basically the same as what I'm describing now. He used to say that you could, be, you could not speak the language That's right. and you could tell who the best comedians working were sure. just by the electricity in the room. Oh, yeah. I, but I also think when the quality is high, when you talk about like a, hack, a hacky yeah. person wouldn't do well in the room, I think that's part of why the hacky person wouldn't do well in the room because the intelligence of the other comedian sets a bar and then if suddenly you go on and you're doing kind of goofy old jokes from the 70s, you would be revealed. And you know, when we start with somebody that are doing good and let's see what happens, if they're not good, they're gonna fall off. Yes. They're gonna fall off. They're not gonna keep growing and they're gonna just be swallowed by, by the others. Yes. So Pete Davidson, actually mm -hmm. it's, it's his, so I saw a show, I was an early adopter of a very few comedians, of uh, Sean Patton, Remember, I, 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 I rammed Sean Pan down yeah. his throat. I, I love him now. And now, yeah. And <laughs> then, but he, no. he struggled at first. Yeah. Um, the same thing with you, Ricky, when you first came. Do you remember? Yeah. It, was, it wasn't the same Ricky that you have now. <laughs> yeah. I was young. You, still you young. are still young, but, yeah. but yeah. You, you have the talent. You have the intelligence to break through. So, so, so then I went to a Caroline show one time on a Sunday night, and it was very slow and there were two comedians there Pete Davidson and Gary Veter both who I'd never seen before yeah. and both of them I came back and I saw these two guys and there's only 11 people there so I'm not sure if I'm able to judge what I'm seeing but both of them seem to have something and we, we had them both start coming to the club and sure enough Pete Davidson turned out to be uh, the, the, the latest um, I don't know what, what do you call them protege or people that you're backing what is that a word for it you're like the latest uh, collaborator but you, but you do seem to look at, Promote. like you saw Amy, or you see like yeah, who yes. the person of tomorrow is and then try to do something with them, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's people that just as a fan I like, but a, a lot of times it's just people who I think have a story. Mm -hmm. You know, Amy Schumer had a great story to tell. Pete has a great story to tell. And so it, it's both things. You know, I, I feel like the audience will connect to them the way I am, but also there's something really deep and meaningful about what we're trying to... But do you, with this movie. This, tell you, us about you, movie. You seem to genuinely like them, though. Yes. It's not just the story and the interesting, whatever. You seem to like them. Yeah, it's like falling in love with somebody. You you know, you see yeah. someone. I mean, Amy Schumer, I just heard her on Howard Stern. I don't even know if I'd seen her stand-up at the time I called her. I just heard her telling stories about what it was like having a dad with MS, and she was so sweet, but also really darkly funny. And in my head, I just thought I would watch this movie. And I was more interested in her as just kind of like the spirit of her than having seen her like kill doing stand up. And Pete is, a, is the same way. I remember hearing Pete just talk about his life and his father on Pete Holmes' podcast. And that's probably more meaningful than everything else, just how he expresses himself about his, his life. So, people, people who may not know, uh, Pete's dad was a fireman and died mm -hmm. at 9 11 when Pete was how old? Ten? Uh, seven. Seven. Seven years old. So it's obviously, that's probably like the one of the worst ages to lose your father. Like, Absolutely. You're, you're a little bit older, you're kind of more full grown, a little bit younger, a little bit more resilient maybe in that way, but seven years old is really. And he had just moved uh, to a new school that week. 
Mm. You know, it was just, all of it was very hard. And Pete's been very honest about it. You know, he's so, uh, you know, willing to be vulnerable in discussing it. So the movie is fictional, but it's inspired by the feelings he's had about losing a dad who who was a hero. And when's this movie coming out? It's going to come out in in June. And Marissa Tomei's in it. Ricky plays his his best friend in it, and is really hilarious and great. And uh, Bill Burr is in the in the film. Steve Buscemi. I bet you Ricky looks like. I mean, he's handsome. I, I said this one time when I saw you on stage how handsome you looked on TV. And you're like, no, no. When you see a real movie star, you can see the difference. You remember that conversation you had with me? Yeah. But I bet you he looks super. Drop dead handsome in this. No, movie. they shaved my head. I look oh. nuts. <laughs> I look like a criminal at oh, all no. times during oh. this movie. It's a okay. handsome criminal. He looks like a handsome criminal. So we shot all summer in Staten Island, and we had a lot of real firefighters starring in the movie. And super we, cool. We just started showing the movie to people. I'm editing now and seeing what people think about it. What do you mean, like uh, test audiences? Yeah. So we, you know, we show the movie like four or five times and. You know, we take notes and we record the crowd and we see where the laughs are and we ask them, you know, what are you tracking? Are you because there's what you think you're saying to them, but sometimes the audience goes, I didn't pick up on any of that, like what you think it's about. And so you you have a conversation with the audience and you adjust the movie to make sure they get it. I, I remember James Brooks once saying, you know, if the audience doesn't love it, you failed. Like so, you're in a collaboration with them at this stage. I agree with that. People would, when I had the band, I said, how was this? They're pretty good. I'm like, oh, that's, I, I, and it had to be fantastic. Like they had to be afraid to get up and go to the bathroom because they didn't know what they would miss. Yes. And people would actually say, oh, we didn't want to leave. We didn't want to go to the bathroom. I said, oh, that's anything less than that. I felt we had no future. And I think that's basically true. It has to be that good. Otherwise, it eventually peters out. You know, you, you can't sustain it. Now, Judd, I, I do want to talk about my role a little bit in the movie. Um, <laughs> well, I'm interested. By the way, the only time I ever act, work as an actor is when I get a call, not because I... And it's always from me. And it's typically from Judd. One, one time was from Chris Rock. I was in Top 5. Yes. But I've never auditioned my way into a part. Why not? How come your but, fantastic work on Crashing hasn't led to a wave of auditions? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, typically when you cast, you don't... And how much of your casting process is auditions versus people you just want? I mean, did Marissa... Ricky, Ricky uh, came in and auditioned. Everybody came in and auditioned. You did not audition. SD did not audition. I just had faith. Um, <laughs> well, you know, but Ricky had a bigger part. But was he, did you have him in mind? or, or it was, yes, yes. But we still made him audition and read a lot of people for his part. You know, Pete felt like, you know, Ricky was the right person. And I hadn't seen Ricky act, and so I brought in you know, 30 other people to read for it, and Ricky was the right person for it. But how, how much of the part is... But I've heard tell that one, that basically they know who they want, and unless you just blow the audition just sky high, you're not going to get the, the part. They already know who they want. Is, is there truth to that? or, or is, is I, it, I don't think so. I think people do come in and lose the part all the time. There are people you think like, oh, like for Knocked Up, I, I read at least 100 women for the Katherine Heigl part and, and knocked up. And there were so many people who came in where we thought, oh, she's gonna nail this, this is the best idea. And then her and Seth would have no chemistry mm -hmm. at all. And it just- So what you're trying to work. say is it's me. 
I'm just saying, Dan, I'm trying to say that you are magic. You are magic, and I am the only one who seems to have noticed. I noticed, but, but <laughs> I noticed you, you every came, week. You came up with that part especially for me, or, or it was a part No, that Universal was our... called and said, write Dan Natterman in. <laughs> well, like I, Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen Ross. Well, I think like any other part, it's no different than like wanting to make a movie with Pete, honestly. It's just, I think you're funny. I think you're an interesting person, and in... In trying to show what life is like at the Comedy Cellar, I thought, well, this is the kind of person you encounter at the Comedy Cellar who's like really funny and interesting. And it's funny to have someone that kind of doesn't like Pete, which I also thought was interesting, that just like quietly you're rooting against him, which gives you something fun to do. And uh, and then you were great in everything. And I thought that every time we used you, you really popped. And, uh, and I like that the series ends on you. Like the last moment oh, where people you know are like talking and crashing is you trashing Pete. It was beautiful that the series ended <laughs> on me, although I would have preferred it didn't end because uh, I would have I want to squeeze out that extra season. Yes, yes. Because the residuals, the sweet sweet HBO residuals. All right, so we have Dan made a list. Now, you know, Judd is a very uh, issues-oriented guy. Well, I just want can I ask him one more yeah, of course. Go ahead. thing? Go ahead. Go ahead. Judd's a guy who has basically risen to the top of his profession uh, in the comedy world, I mean, there's it, not too much higher you could go. I, I mean, I suppose you could, but it, it would be difficult. Are, are you now? Uh, um, are you? Are you? Are you? What, what's left to conquer? What hills are, are left to climb? What mountains? What? I don't really think of it in those terms. I just think of it as: uh, can I think of another story, and then can I figure out how to tell it well? So, what's the next story? That I would be passionate about. It isn't really about anything but that. You know, stand up is a mountain to climb always. So if you do stand up, you're never where you want to be. I don't think anyone feels like they've done their best work. And so I that's what I like about it, which is that it's it's every night it could go great or be a disaster. And then with a movie, you always think you have a better movie in you, but it's not really about, you know getting to another level. I'd like to do well, a Broadway show at, at some point. I, that's one thing I've never attempted. I took a year and tried to write a play, and I literally did not write one word. I just sat in, in an apartment thinking and, <laughs> and literally got paralyzed and wrote nothing. So I, I'd like to Is get over scary? that. What if somebody wanted to take one of your existing hit movies? And, He's and, a 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> yeah, no, he can do get it, it done. <laughs> like, like the producers. Well, that would be... Uh, yeah. Not in crazy. They're doing it all the time. They do it with, uh, you know, Groundhog Day, and it's uh, a, it's, it's possible. In my head, it's so terrible <laughs> that I never believe it could be good. But you know, people have pulled those things off. So, the producers was good, right? From what I never, I didn't uh, see it, but uh, what uh, the producers? Yeah, the play, fantastic. The the show, yes, it, can, it, it can be done. It's, I mean, I think it's hard, but it, it could be done. All right. So th there's no upside in. Um, this goes back to what we're talking about before. Like Judd is Judd is has is opinionated on everything, and I'm opinionated on everything. And we, I don't know if we disagree about that much, but the things that we disagree about are the things we tend to talk about. Yes, we agree about go unspoken. But um, I'm I'm very reluctant to to debate anything with Judd on the air because like, what's the upside? Like, win an argument or or and piss off Judd or lose an argument? I mean, I don't know. I don't. I'd really like you that. to be as aggressive as you can be right now. No, <laughs> no like Perry out brought up the Harvey Weinstein comic, and maybe that. Oh, why don't you? Why don't you go? Yeah, why don't you ask? Oh, him? I listened to that debate. 
Well, we had a fight on the last show a little bit. Well, so you cut some Would of it you out, let so. Harvey into the club? That's what that was. What the fight was about? Yes. No, that wasn't I, what the fight was. Well, about. that was one that was in one part. question that was asked. The other question was: Is what's the appropriate response of a comedian that goes on stage and sees Harvey Weinstein in the audience? <clears throat> and I said that I really support Kelly, who I don't know. Uh, some, somebody needs to, to just run down the story a little bit in case well, nobody. Go ahead. No, I don't know the story that well. I'll run down the story. Okay. He was at, I don't know why Harvey Weinstein's going to open mic nights. He wasn't. <laughs> Val told me that that's not what happened. Apparently, there was a comedy show going on in like the corner of a restaurant, and he was there for some other thing. Uh, so he wasn't there to see the actual well, that, show. Well, that's what Val said, and I don't know if that's accurate or not. Well, Sounds right. Probably it's, it's, it's Val's unlikely right. That Sounds like a tough it. gig. <laughs> The yeah. restaurant gig where half the place doesn't know a show is going on. But it was like a, a lot small, of bar shows in the city. Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> a like a small like stand-up show. Yes. Like, it wasn't like some big thing. And she saw, Kelly Bachman saw him in the audience. And she is a rape survivor. And she actually has done a comedy show comprised of all women. Uh, and she, who and have she been called raped, him and out. And she called him yes. out. And she said, oh, like, I didn't realize that comics needed to, like, bring mace and, like, rape whistles <laughs> on stage now. Um, and I said that I thought that was really fucking brave. And I gave her a lot of credit for doing that. And then I got in trouble for saying that. But, no, you kind of said that if, if Harvey Weinstein came into the comedy cellar, you would tell comedians not to give him a hard time. Yeah. You know, he was here before. Yeah. Before but, he but, like, would you do that now? Look, I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I came up at a time when the Nazis were marching in Skokie and the liberal people felt like that was the right thing to allow them to do. In a sense of a very kind of objective idea that, that the, in the overall, the best way to succeed as a society is to buy into these fictions of rights and 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 uh, presumptions of innocence and whatever it is, and have a little forbearance and just, um, just not permit ourselves to indulge these righteous emotions. I don't. I don't. And I think I was pretty clear on the show. I no, don't, you I don't are. doubt for one minute how 100%. she felt or whatever. It is. So, like, if I'm at a dinner table and my wife finds out that I've been cheating or have a second family, she can get up. And with the same honesty of emotion, just scream and yell at me in front of the whole restaurant. But she probably shouldn't. She probably let's let's, let's take this outside. Or, you know, it's, it's almost like well, pe people think like, people think like God is on their side. So like, it, so there was some horrible story about some people who were protesting or like outing somebody who maybe was a soldier who was being buried, and they were they found out that he was gay, and this anti-gay rights movie came to the funeral. And remember this? I don't remember the details. But it's just that's the most horrible thing you could imagine. But from their point of view, like, no, no, we are right about this. And and though in this particular incident, maybe you could convince me that. But what I'm saying is that when you start allowing for these ex exceptions, people are going to find them by the thousands. Right. That's and they're what you misfire. said that I think resonated yeah. with me. It's yeah. like, well, where's the line and who decides and when as it that turns is? Out, as it turns out, he wasn't there for the show. He was just maybe minding his own business well, eating never, dinner. Well, nevertheless, I mean, yeah. I'm well, we still don't know on the for fence sure if that's the case. As to whether or not he should be roaming around. Well, let's presume. Let's presume. This is interesting. 
I don't think he should be roaming around. I said I'm, I'm on the fence as to yeah. whether... I don't know. I mean, I'm really conflicted about it. I okay. don't... So, so, Perry, so let's presume just for the sake of argument that he was just there having dinner. Yeah. Are we now saying that anybody should be able to come up to this man and just call him out and scream and yell at well, him? Well, you are ready. allowed to do that. No, but th- that, we, that we think that that's... Like, I would disapprove of that. I well, say, you do disapprove and, of that. Right, I would say if, if Ahmadinejad came to the olive tree... I would let him have his dinner. Well, that was you how know. we got to Hitler. Yeah, but you, you know, well, that's the thing about Hitler. <laughs> 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 it was. I mean, that oh, was. Come on, honey. <laughs> hey, Judd, we no, might not have to say anything. No, we didn't get to Hitler that way. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that's, not what, that's not what she meant. That, that we were, no, that is, yeah. we were talking, I no. said, so would you at Hitler and then also. I, See, I, I think what it is is yeah. that you seem to think that there are rules that apply to everybody. And you want like certain like rules to to uh that we all would honor i i if i was you i i would look at it differently which is if i own a club it's my space and i decide and i'm allowed to make mistakes and so sometimes you'll say i know stuff about all the comedians that's bad so if i'm against this comedian but i know something no one knows about that comedian which makes perfect sense. But at the same time, you have the right, if Harvey Weinstein wants to come to the club, to just go, go fuck yourself, you rapist piece of shit. And that's fine. I don't think that it applies to every situation or that you even have to be right in every situation. And that even if you're wrong, that's just how the world works. Like, for instance, if I was at a restaurant and Harvey was there, I don't think I would be the person going, you know, screw you, you rapist. That wouldn't be what I would do. But I also feel like if Harvey wants to go to a restaurant, it should be assumed there's a very good chance that will happen. And that's fine. It's almost like the free market. It's almost like our democracy. If, uh, you know, if you are out in the world, you will get reactions and business owners ultimately decide uh how they want to manage it. So there are certain people who've gotten in trouble and a a business will decide, you know, we don't want to have Matt Lauer work here anymore. Uh, or they could have said, you know what, we don't think it's that bad and he can apologize and we'll move on. And unfortunately or fortunately in our society, a lot of times businesses are making moral decisions and sometimes those moral decisions are based on their economic needs yeah, well, of I'm, the moment. I don't think it's clean the way you want it to be clean. You're, of course, right about the business thing. I don't know what the law is, but, um, you know, basically I think you're right. I, I'm more advocating a social norm because uh, social norms are much more important, I think, than the laws and just kind of like how we decide to behave. So, for instance, there was this guy at Harvard, Sullivan, who was um, like head of the dorm and he got and they and they had him removed because he was he had been on he was a defense attorney and who had been engaged by Harvey Weinstein at one point so I, I feel like this is just a it's a it's metastasizing like any kind of feeling then becomes validation for any kind of uh, overt reaction and but that's still a business decision in a way I feel like it's Harvard which is a business really deciding if they stand for anything, right? They decide like, do we kick that guy out because he was a defense attorney doing his job? Or do we say to our students, no, he he's allowed to take that job. He didn't do anything immoral. I mean, if he did something immoral in his representation, you might say he shouldn't be here. I think there's a real issue with having people who've lied for Trump and know they lied for Trump working at Harvard as professors when we know 
Sean Spicer knew that the crowd sizes were just blatant okay. lies and propaganda. But, but judge, that's and this, a different this, this is a perfect example. First of all, I, I'm not I'm not talking about the businesses. I'm talking about just kind of what we should think. Uh, the social norms is really what it is like how but, we internalize. But no one's in charge of social norms. Those but, are personal. So, but let me give you choices. an example. So it comes to mind. I just saw recently the Politifact one year. You know, I think they every year they have a, a lie of the year. Yeah. And their lie of the year one year was that when Obama said, "If you like your plan, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan." Yeah. That was a big so, one. Yeah. And apparently, and I'm not trying to bash Obama. This is apparently he he said this knowingly. So as soon as they, okay, now you're going to fire Sean Spicer. He lied about the crime size lying. And I say, okay, well, you know what? I don't want to bomb him. And people say, where, where, this is ridiculous. Like you can't, and, and, and everybody might be justified. And I'm just saying that the, that cure is much worse than the disease. We're not giving up that much if we allow our institutions to take care of things, if we comport ourselves in accordance with the presumptions that we believe are true, even if it's very hard to swallow. There are times, after all, when we're sure someone was guilty and they turn out not to be. There was a, a guy who was accused of being a Nazi war criminal in the 90s, I With think. With the Mianyu guitar? Yeah, yeah. I was just watching, by the way, on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. It was in the 80s. On Netflix, the docu there's a documentary on that called The Devil Next Door, which you probably would enjoy, yeah, I, about John Demian, the guy from Ohio. Yeah, they said he was yeah. Ivan the Terrible. They said he was Ivan the Terrible. What turned out not to be. So, Although so, he, they, he probably was doing some shady shit, but he wasn't yeah, Ivan the Terrible. He wasn't Ivan the Terrible. So, and everybody was sure of it, right? And it's just safer, and it, I think it's a nicer way to live. She's making a personal decision to, to stand up, and I don't think that you can have rules that apply. So I, I, you know, sometimes your philosophy seems to be much more permissive because you don't want to violate anyone, but you shouldn't let Harvey come into the comedy cellar. Like if you let him come in and, and eat here, it, it would be really messed up uh, because it's not like we don't know what that is. I mean, you could say he hasn't been found guilty, but there is a, a certain point when you, when, when you have like, 60 accusers and there's audio of him doing it and there are documentaries about it that you have enough information as a club owner to go i'm I, i'm in charge of who's allowed to walk in here i mean isn't that like what you say like we we we, we have the right to refuse service to anyone but it's ultimately up to you you know i apply this also like we were talking the other day about all the nba players not speaking up about china Right. So like we're in this world where like everybody is co-opted in some way. And it's kind of like Harvard. What are they making a the decision for? Are they making it to look moral or are they making it to not get in trouble with their board or with students? And everyone kind of seems to be full of shit these days in terms of what their standards are. And I know that's what bothers you the most. Like I'm bothered that there's not one NBA player who will say there's a million Muslims in prison camps in China. So they'll fight for Colin Kaepernick and his right to do what he does, but not one of them will risk anything to go, there's a million people, some people think millions, in, in basically concentration camps in, in China. And that's what's happening in our world. Like everyone is personally deciding 
will I stand up for anything? Do I But I think care? that's also part of what we were talking about. It's like, so, and I mean, I think you did say that you would not let Weinstein in, but, yeah, but it's I, like, where's the line no, then? Because there but, are other people but to be, who... To, to, be, to, to help you with your point against me, I, I cowardly said I wouldn't let him in because I would be afraid of the disruption in, in the place. I, he'd be bad. It would be bad for my business for having him to come in. What if the crowd cheered for him? Would you personally not want him? I would, per- of course I would personally not want him. Would you I, let him in because the crowd doesn't care? Care? I would, I would, in a certain universe, I would swallow it. And let me let's 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 go back to Ahmadinejad or somebody you know, or or you know somebody where Assad else. comes here. Assad wants come, a yeah, laugh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, would you let Assad in? Honestly. I would. I he would, wants a guest in, in the in the proper universe. I would suck it up because I feel that that's the way um, we should. That that it's kind of like paying my dues for for a better society. I think, on the whole, those those small difficult outrages that we'd feel are much better alternative to where we're heading in general as a society. And I don't know how to separate the kind of direction we're hurtling in from these threshold examples. I think that... It's an extreme example, listen, I, I, yeah, but I think the, the issue of our time is that we're losing a margin for error in everything, in the things we can discuss, and the people we can talk to, and the people we can interview, and the ideas we can kick around, and the opinions we might take, in in the personal behavior that we might have engaged in many, many years ago, and we're ashamed of and wanted to come clean about, and everything is just judging, 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 judging. I think and, my issue is that you don't realize that things are getting way better. That yes, there are things that you know go too far in this adjustment, but I'll give you an example. I uh, have a show, uh, had a show at HBO, and they changed the rule, and they said, half of your directors need to be women or diverse hires. This is for uh, Diversity hires, for crashing. But it's for all their shows. And at first, you're like, oh, but I got these guys they are so good, I, now I can't use all the guys I want to use. But then after doing the show for three years, you realize the show's way better, I found so many people I would not have hired, and if they do it across HBO and it's across the business, well, we've given tons of people opportunities. We have made the work richer because it's not all the same white dude, you know, with his, uh, you know, uh, point of view. It's still capitalism. No one forced them to do it. Just as corporations, they've decided that they would prefer to do this, and the audience, for the most part, wants it. But what does that have to do with what, what I'm? Yeah. Because it's like there's another point of view, which is just like, but you should just hire the best person, right? And so for all these things, you could go, well, we don't want Harvey Weinstein's in the world. You know, I was asked to be at the New Yorker Festival, and I said I wouldn't go because Steve Bannon was there. Because I'm like, I don't have to share space with him. I mean, to me, he's a racist, bad figure, and I don't want to like honor him to be like on a list of people with me. And... You know, people were some people were mad about that. They're like, "Yes, we should all know what he thinks." Like, no, fuck him. If he's if he's a bad guy, you don't get to hang out in the same space I get to hang out with. And a lot of people, Mulaney among them, said, "No, we're not going to do that." And they got rid of him. And I think some people, the New Yorker, were not happy about it because they felt like, "No, this is an exchange of ideas," which I understand. But it's uh, we all have to decide personally, you know, what that line is. And I think ultimately, the world is getting better. Like I went to this Ronan Farrow a book event the other night. And the amount of women who stood up and said, Harvey Weinstein attacked me, I fought him off, and then I 
lost like 90% of my work over the next 10 years was astounding. Like the look in their eyes, the shock that their entire world collapsed when this guy just started shit talking them and not hiring them. So I go, yeah, fuck that guy. He destroyed people. He doesn't deserve to be in your club. And you, you're allowed to make that choice and go, I've got enough information just for my space, like in my life. I, I can decide who I want in my space. So let me you go get back to decide that. So this is very interesting. I, know, I don't know if you know your own strength in a way. Yeah. So the Steve Bannon thing, I remember that. You know, uh, Steve Bannon was going to be on the, the show, and uh, I think they hadn't warned people in advance. I think maybe you, you told me that. Um, but, there, you know... It, and it's it, a festival. Yeah. It's not like we're on the... We're all about to dig in with all the good and bad people right. in politics. Like, it's mainly like entertainers. Okay. But, the, but the momentum of that incident and and many other incidents means that if Steve Bannon wanted to come on my podcast and I would love to talk to Steve Bannon find out the Trump stories find out what he's about call him to task on things I mean this guy this guy's a player in in our in our democracy how I'm not gonna you know wouldn't want to talk to him um I I'd, I'd be afraid to have him on because there's no margin for error like like the 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 implication of all the people getting up from the restaurants and calling him out and backing off the shows has made it hard for me to make the decision to speak to this guy on a radio show. And I think that's a heavy price to pay for these. Absolutely, people have a right to make these decisions and every business has a right to make it. I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is to have everybody zoom out and understand that it's not just about that incident. It adds up to something. And let's not pretend it doesn't add up but to that's, something. But the and, and let's be aware of the cost. But, but you know, the New Yorker Festival is a money-making, uh, uh, you know, it, it's not there for the good of the world. It's, a, it's a, a way for them to promote the magazine and make money. Yes, if you, but my feeling is you can, sure, talk to Steve Bannon or don't talk to Steve well, Bannon. Feeling, but, but if I have a podcast, I don't have to talk to Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon doesn't have a right to be on your show. No. And, and so if you have an, an interview with him, and you challenge him and you ask good questions, I don't think anyone would care. If you kissed his ass the whole time and was you know, soft on him. Oh, and they can judge me for that. Exactly, yeah. and I think that's mainly how the world works. I don't feel like, I'm not seeing this, the New Yorker had another festival. Well, let me well they you, had it that year and the next year it was successful. Like nothing bad happened to the New Yorker. Let me give you a real example. So um, uh, Mark Halperin. Yes. Now this is the Mark, he, he's, uh, now Mark Halperin, um, is a is a real bad story. This, but this is the story as I know it. Uh, when he was working at ABC, he was sexually harassing women, including things like having them sit on his lap, uh, going up behind them and pressing his erect penis into them, and, and just reprehensible stuff. Um, but apparently, he. At some point, there was no, never a complaint to HR or anything. This was just going on. And he got a hold of himself, and he decided he had a problem, and he went to therapy. The incident stopped, and 12 years later, he was at ABC. It came out, and he was fired, and he's been canceled. And this is a very tough thing for me to, to figure out because, okay, he did these terrible things, much worse than some of the other things. I mean, this is really very close to the, 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 uh, to the worst end of all these stories. On the other hand, he stopped on his own. He didn't stop like most people do because they got caught. 
He seeks therapy, and he stopped doing it. Now, 12 years later, he's trying to support his family, and, he, and he's a talented political writer, and he wants to write a book, and he starts interviewing people about how to stop Trump. And David Axelrod and a bunch of people sat for interviews with him, and they were all forced to apologize for even speaking to this man. And then Judith Regan asked us if we'd have him on our podcast. And of course I want to talk to him. I want to talk about the personal stuff. I want to talk about the political stuff. And I, uncharacteristically, I chickened out. And I didn't feel good about myself. And, and like, what do we think? Like, does, and this is the margin for error. Like, yes, he did something really bad. And, and, but the way we're living now, if I were to want to talk to him, people will insist it's because I don't think it's that bad or that I'm somehow sympathetic to it, or I might do it myself, or, or I'm creating an unsafe work environment. And, how, and, and you know what they'll say, oh, uh, you, you made the place unsafe for your female employees by allowing him to come in and sit for the, I mean, this is all what really goes on. And I can't separate that out. And I'm gonna, I will go on record as saying, of course I should be able to talk to Mark Halperin. Of course I should be able to I, talk I, to I him. I actually agree, I agree with you. I think you should be able to talk with him. But I think that's a different situation than the New Yorker celebration with this guy who just preaches propaganda and hate and corruption and collusion. Like he's a he's a bad voice in our world that's actually affecting us on a daily basis. Well, I, mean, I fault Remick. Remnick, is that his name? Remnick, yeah. yeah, because he should have. I don't know the story, but it it since everybody seemed to be blindsided by this, that seemed to be poor planning. Like you know, so. Yeah, if he's going to have somebody as radioactive as, as Steve Bannon on, he better make sure that everybody's okay with that. But I admired his instinct, which was, Steve, we don't get... It's like the Israelis used to be criticized to say, we'll negotiate for, with, for a two-state solution, but we're not talking to the PLO. It's like, you know, no, you yeah. don't get to choose who the other side well, is. Well, my position was this. You engage the other side that exists. I would never tell people, don't go to the New Yorker Festival because Steve Bannon is there. My position was, I'm not going to go because Steve Jack, Bannon is Can I ask you, there. you're on stage. It's yes. a 10 p.m. show at the Village Underground. Yeah. Killing, annihilating. The crowd is eating out of the palm of your hands. Camille Cosby walks in. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> you, well, not Camille Cosby. You looked, you just finished your bit about Cosby, Yes. in fact. Uh, interestingly enough, you look to the right. Guess who's sitting there? Harvey Weinstein. Yes, he's sitting there in the front row. He's got the balls on this guy. He's got the nerve to sit in the front row. <laughs> Is he clapping? Howling. <laughs> he loves me. Loves me. He loves the Cosby bit. <laughs> Oddly enough, he loves the Cosby. But but now you see Harvey. Now what do you do? Well, here's the thing. I want to be in Shakespeare in Love Part Two, so it's going to be hard for me to stand up. Uh, I would go at him on stage you if would. he was sitting in the crowd. Yeah. I don't think I, I. I would think I would hopefully do it more elegantly than uh, than happened that night at the open mic. But I think that. Well, can I yeah, say I, something? I, I, would, I, would. I don't know. I don't even understand why it's a conversation. Why a comic wouldn't address something that was going on in the room? That's though. what yeah. I said too. It's this very is... odd to me that this is even a conversation. Well, I don't I'll understand why. why the comic's not only because to say Ricky or well because one reason one reason is is because you might make it so awkward that it kind of fucks up the show for everybody else. That, that, I mean, theoretically. I mean, uh, supposedly half the restaurant didn't know the show was happening. Well, yeah, I so don't know precisely <laughs> what was going on yeah. with that. But I'm saying as a general matter, it might be, it, like say Cosby's in the back of the room, you know. And, and, and everybody's now weirded out and the whole show now becomes about that. And the audience that was paying to get in and is completely innocent in all this 
might have a worse experience. I, that that might be one well, very that's, practical that, reason. That, that's 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 the that that's the difference between a comic that knows how to turn something on and to, to doesn't. That's that's a comic bombing or not. That's not about. I but, mean, but if you don't figure here's out, an example. I don't know if it's a great example, but here's an example. Artie Fuqua came in with a crazy suit on one day, and I remember watching the show, and every single comic got up there and opened with a roast on, uh, like just going after it, and it killed the whole show. Everybody talked about it walking out. They were like, oh, you guys killed him on the suit. It was hilarious. But it's just like, because that's what we do. It's, it, it's a His suit is benign. It's exterior. What we're addressing here is an issue that most people have a conflict with. And if you are getting at somebody in the audience for whatever lifestyle they have or whatever, it's a different, it's a different pain. Yeah, I understand and that. And it's not the comedian's job to straighten that person out. Well, that's the art of it. I mean, if you I was I mean? if I was at the club and let's say Harvey is there and I knew Dave Attell was about to get up, I'd run into the room and fight someone for their seat to see how <laughs> 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 Like I feel that, like that, there are people right. that could, you're you know, right. turn that into a moment where it isn't just a screaming diatribe yeah. that you can be funny and creative. But you know, it's rare that you're at a comedy club and a violent criminal. Yeah, it was tough. It was club. not like a premeditated thing. It was a really difficult, genuinely difficult situation. That's um, triggering. I mean, if OJ's in the room, do you say something, Natterman? Uh, I, well, yeah, that's a good. Well, how about, I don't how know, about Louis Farrakhan? If I felt I could definitely handle the situation Wait. without without uh, you know making the show so weird. And 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 just that it would ruin the you know the really kind of ruin things. I, yeah, I mean, Dan, I, I probably would. Louis yeah. Farrakhan said that Judaism got a religion and we're devils, yeah. all the terrible thing. Now Louis Farrakhan comes to the comedy show, and some comedian there just starts ripping him into asshole. I would say, I'd say, nobody hates him more than I do. I would say, don't do that. That's what I would say. Um, I I would love to talk to Louis Farrakhan in the audience. I think, and I think there Talk is a. Talk to him is fine. Well, I, yeah. what is ripping? I mean, there's ripping, really, which is without comedy. We're still in a comedy club. I would make it lighthearted club. and talk about his bow tie. I would talk about how uncomfortable he is watching the Jew. Um, <laughs> you, you would tease him, <laughs> but you would do. But I'm saying, but but there's okay, so, and I agree with that. Also, because it's it's a little ballsy to walk into a comedy club. What's interesting about the Weinstein thing is he might have not known he was walking into a comedy club. Like you walk in, sit in the front row, you're kind of asking for it, and that and that is part of the equation. I I understand. But would you kind of become the cheerleader to have the entire audience ridicule this man? They kind of did this to Pence at Hamilton, didn't they? Do something yeah, like that? I yeah. don't think that's what happened. Um, at I don't the, like that. At the show. Like, I don't think that's well, what I, we happened. We can all agree though. that we don't want to ruin the show for everybody else. I mean, can we? Can uh-huh. we maybe, maybe the audience wants the show ruined. I mean, if you're at Hamilton and Mike Pence walks in and you're in the middle of a scene, I mean, that's just how our world works. Like, you. You, know, you got to see a weird moment in history. I don't feel like people will be like, oh, I couldn't enjoy Dan Natterman because Attell yelled at Farrakhan. You know, I think that you're happy that something happened. I agree happened. with that. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, if I had to go to Hamilton, I would like to have been there on the night <laughs> that, that it got ruined by Pence. And I honestly believe, especially like the lineups here, I don't think there would be able to be a show with Harvey Weinstein in the room and all the comics go home feeling good about themselves. Like in the way not of not saying it? something. Not Has there ever been something? anything like this at the cellar? Uh, not since Donald Trump Jr. got in a fight here and yeah. <laughs> banged somebody over the head with a bottle. But wasn't or he, he a defending a comic? 
Wasn't no, he the f- no. Oh, I don't know. no, I don't know the story. Oh, no, no. What year well, was this? 90s, actually, actually, so the, the fight was between two audience members, and yes, one was making a racial slur about the Hispanics or something, and Donald was defending him. And that's where it got, they got the, into And Donald took a bottle and bashed him over no, the head. No, he, <laughs> he got hit. He got hit. The other guy hit him in the bash, in back of yeah. his head, opened his head. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the only celebrity that I can recall looking in the audience was, uh, was uh, Burton Cummings from the Guess Who, but he's a very uncontroversial figure. <laughs> I saw David Tell be very cruel to the drummer for the band Train one night. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't love Megan Kelly. I'm sorry. I never liked her. And she came in and she sat at the table and she was kind. And I met her in that yeah. way of like personal. She, she was, was very kind oh, and nice. But the rest of that, the, like, I just. Ann Coulter's been in the audience. Can we stick to Megan Kelly for a second? This is actually a pretty good example about like how this all spins out of control. So Megyn Kelly made that comment about like when we were kids, we used to be able to dress up as Diana Ross and got fired and everybody was outraged and just, you know, I'm so much more impressed by, by the few people who defend than the, everybody who piles on, but everybody piled on Megyn Kelly and it was so dishonest. I, by the way, no, we're agreeing on a lot today. Yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> I know an enormous amount of people who were unaware of how wrong that was. There's a difference between people who are dressed up like the KKK and yeah. someone's in blackface and people who thought they could you know, dress up like Diana Ross. Well, and clearly it was okay and, to dress up like Diana Ross because Jimmy Kimmel did it and, and I mean, the list of, of celebrities. Or people didn't understand why it would be inappropriate. They were not, they were ignorant to the effect that it has on other people or the meaning of it to some people. But what's interesting is that I, I was kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive one time, um, that the people who were, they dressed up as, like, like I think Kimmel dressed up as Oprah and Fred Armisen dressed up as Obama, there never seemed to be any offense taken even from the black people who were being dressed up as. Like I don't, it, it seems like Diana Ross, it's not, I, there's no specific example about Diana Ross, but there were specific celebrities who people dressed up, even the term blackface is already too, put a conclusion on it because blackface really means the mocking of black people which is not the same thing as what Fred Armisen did darken his skin to look like Obama what about the movie Soul Man yeah, yeah. well there was also the movie that's uh, pretty offensive Tropic now. Thunder <laughs> what about the movie Watermelon Man do you remember that no with Godfrey Cambridge uh, about I, a white man who one day woke up and he was black and it was a very political movie. It was a it was a black man pretending to be white for the first act, and then he was uh, his, his, his real color for the rest. You never heard of that movie? Yeah, I heard of it. I never saw it. So the thing that with Megyn Kelly is that since then, Justin Trudeau's been reelected, and the governor of Virginia's been reelected, who, who's actually dressed up as Klansman, you know. And we realize, oh, it was just they hated Megyn Kelly, so she was a lightning rod, and. This I, I can't separate these things out from all these incidents we're talking about. It's just like this collective... One big pile of garbage. Yeah, but isn't that different, like <laughs> Megyn Kelly coming to the cellar that night than Harvey Weinstein? I mean, I, I mean, and I again, I think, I just think it's but the Judge, owners call what they're comfortable with. Like whatever any, like if a restaurateur is like, I don't want Donald Trump Jr. here, or I don't want Bernie Sanders here, I mean, people have I generally the right to do, do that. Do you, do you know that if Megyn Kelly had come in, 
right during that time, given when she was really on the hot seat. And I had said to the comedians, please don't make fun of Megyn Kelly. And that got to the press. That would be used as evidence that I was a racist. It, w- it would have been very dangerous for me to have been known right at that, in that week to say, listen, I, I, think she's, I think she's being treated unfairly here. There's no margin for error. Again, it's like everybody, it would have been, especially since I was the guy who put Louie on, there was one person at the Huffington Post that was researching a story. Thank, and the name of this, the headline of the story was to be Noam Dwarman is the worst person in the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but isn't the issue that... <laughs> but, this is really true. But Noam, isn't the issue that because you don't want to make a mistake that you will let everybody in? Yes. And I'm just saying, <laughs> I think it's okay for you to make those decisions for your It is. I, I don't judge yeah. anybody for the decisions they make. I'm, I really don't. Talk as long as you let the Jews in, Noam, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm advocating for a certain social norm of forbearance for everybody just to take a breath. It's not the end of the world to see somebody who offends. Now maybe, and Harvard Weinstein is like the Hitler example, which makes it so difficult. Thank but you. But you know what? So was... Nobody seemed to have that sympathy for the for the old Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois, who were going to have to witness the Nazis marching down their street. Well, liberals I didn't at that time that said they should have been able to do on. that either. Well, you, you didn't think, but liberals at that time said, "Deal with it." You know that 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 was the the ACLU enlightened view was to tell these actual Holocaust survivors, "Hey, it's America, deal with it." So, well, it's, I think what I'm saying is not crazy. The issue is that some of those gatherings are set up in such a way that violence may happen. I think you know, in those days, people felt like, well, they're just gonna go down the street. There's not too many of them. But now, you know, like in Charlottesville, they're not organized properly or safely. And the decision about letting people gather like that is also about like, what is the potential for something really awful happening? But they have to let them gather. Um, I mean, the ACLU, I think, still would agree with me yes, on that. Yes, I think they do. Yeah. So what are, what are the other issues? Dan, you dropped, you dropped a bomb well, I, well, I wanted to know what... Judd's probably Judd, got a few more minutes. Who I Judd guess. likes... We're probably over an hour already. We are. Uh, I, I did want to know uh, who Judd likes in 2020. Obviously, uh, he's a Democrat. I, I have not chosen uh, a candidate at this point. I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still open to the possibilities. Do you have any particular ones that to whom you are leaning at this I, I, time? I can't say that I do. I don't think I, I know enough. I think that uh, I need to get more on my game. I do understand a lot of the issues that people are debating about healthcare and what's going too far left and who you know, do we just need to win and when is the moment to fight for certain things. I mean, for me, generally, I feel like you know the world is going off a cliff and and we're all debating how we feel about that and you might say that's due to climate problems or health insurance problems but there's a lot of things that require bigger swings and so you know trump's big swing was the tax cut let's spend all this money on the tax cut but you could have spent all that money on the environment you could have spent all that money on relieving college debt or you could have spent it you know on something that uh, supported people in a different way and so I think I'm grappling with that because I do feel like we are probably past the point where we can fix the environment, at least with current technology. And I do get nervous about candidates who are not deeply concerned that the world is already getting hotter and on fire and flooding. And if, that, if you're not obsessed with that as a candidate, 
and, so and you're just the person that gets in because we don't want a crazy guy like Trump. I, that that makes me nervous for my children and potential grandchildren. So I would I would I would volunteer and go knock on doors for for Bloomberg. I would actually go and vote for Bloomberg. And I, by the way, I, I think he's very uh, environmentally yes. conscious, and he's also for yeah. gun safety. Yeah, and I don't vote, but I would actually go to the polls for Bloomberg. I yeah. would I would. I would have my heart with Mayor Pete and Joe Biden for winning, and um, with Warren or Sanders, I would really, I, I would just probably not even, I, I don't know what I would do. It would be so discouraging. Well, I, I, I'm gonna if if I'm going to lean on you to vote. Yeah. If if Same. Warren or Sanders are the nominee. So, but let me say, I'm about gonna be very hard on you if you do not vote. So, by the way, I think it's very soon someone's gonna say, so I wanna say it first, we need to take Elizabeth Warren figuratively, not literally. You know, they, they yes, say it yes. about Trump. I mean, she's, but the thing about the environment that kills me, and of course I have kids, mm -hmm. and it's a serious issue, right? Let's presume that 12 years is the window. There's only one thing right now that will work is nuclear energy. It's the only thing we have today. So to me, and I haven't heard anybody been able to explain to me where I'm wrong, the only logical thing right now, even with the risks, would be to build as many nuclear power plants as we can right now until such time that the renewables and the alternative forms of energy can lift us of that burden. Because we're playing with the end of time here. Yes. Uh, I was reading today about Germany. They're up to like 35% of renewables for their electric use, but they haven't even begun to crack like transport and manufacturing and whatever. Like countries that have no natural resources like Japan and Israel, smart people, scientific communities are not able to crack this. There's, there's no reason to think we're going to crack this in 12 years. But today we have the nuclear technology. We have Tesla's. All the electricity from the nuclear power plants can charge electric cars. I mean, it's the answer. So I wonder, are the Democrats serious? Because they don't really say what I'm saying, number one. And number two, they're not blasting India and China, who we all know, even if America shuts down, the momentum of their ever-increasing, despite being members of the Paris Accords, they're, they're increasing their emissions. And that alone is going to bring us to the tipping point, even without America at all. So there is this, as always, on both sides, in all parties, but on this issue, it's on the left, this unseriousness about the way they, like, do they really, it, the only way to explain it is they don't really think it's only 12 years. Like, if you thought your child was going to die in 12 years, and there were, you had one, like, research going on to save them, and there is one thing today that will save them, it's like, not even a question, well, okay, give me the thing now that'll save them, and then if whatever I need 12 years from now to keep them alive, that's what I'll, you know, when it's ready, I'll take it. But you don't hear any Democrats saying that, and I don't see what I'm saying wrong. Well, this is what's wrong with us as a species, I think, yeah. which is we just, we're not long-term thinkers. People just think in terms of the next 10 or 20 years, and it really is up to our children to say, you know, you guys are about to destroy everything, and we demand whatever that is, because our world is not gonna be there, at least in the same form, for us, but most people don't. I mean, you know, it's a little bit like gun safety. People slowly get used to 20,000 people a year dying, 30,000 people a year, 40,000 people dying a year. And then it's just locked in like, oh, I, we're just not gonna do anything. And I think that's what's gonna happen with the environment. 
oh, we lost Miami, but we haven't lost the other cities. <laughs> and then you lose, oh, we lost you know, New Orleans. And then we just, we just adjust to the world being on fire a little bit. And then, you know, maybe somehow something changes or the, what the reality of people's lives are becomes a horror show for a lot of the world. Like, you know, there's, you know, a lot of uh, drought in Africa right now. They're saying that they're heading into like a really dangerous period for tens of millions of people. And... Uh, and the world doesn't flip out. You know, they, it's kind of like the school shootings. We'll just have our kids practice not getting shot. Yeah, we'll just do some drills and teach them how to run away. Like, that's the human race in a, in a nutshell. I think and, that's right. And They're selling bulletproof backpacks that's now. That's the craziest yeah. thing. And I think that's going to be what happens with the environment. And that's why they don't go, wait a second, should we build nuclear power plants? Or what, what can we do? We just kind of ease into it because for today... You know, the government can keep the economy going by not messing with anything in a large way. Yeah, I, th I agree with you on that. Um, wouldn't it be ironic if global warming was a, a big boon to the solar energy industry? Well, that's what a lot of people say. I mean, it's funny that our president thinks, you know, that wind power doesn't work because if it's not windy, your TV will shut off. I mean, <laughs> we are living with a president who is as ignorant. And, and the, the hatred of science. Makes sense to me. No, I, meant, I, meant until, I meant until it gets hot enough, the solar yes. powers won't really, like, oh, once it gets hot enough, then the panels will really come online. Okay, uh, exit okay. question for anybody. I don't want to talk about, she wants to talk about the 80th anniversary of Crystal Knox, but I, I want to end on it It's important to acknowledge, that's all. You don't have to talk about it. All right. Um, uh, uh, anything else on your mind, Judd? I only wanted to talk about Crystal Nacht. <laughs> um, but you know what's sad is that kids don't even know about the Holocaust. And if you say what is Auschwitz to kids, they literally don't yeah. know what the word is. And now that all of the survivors are going to soon not be, be alive, uh, it is a very dangerous thing. And it is why it ramps back up because I don't think young people have the terror that we had as kids about not letting it happen. Well, I again. think as long as the Jews know. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it a is. A lot of the Jews don't don't really address it the way it should be addressed. It should be. Well, that's why I get back to China. That there's a million close. people in prison camps exactly, in China. Yeah. If the Jews here aren't furious about that, then what does it mean? Like, if you if Jews don't stand up and go, wait a second, what what's happening in your concentration camps? But people don't because. They just don't want to be bothered. They don't want to but that's get not... in trouble. They don't want to lose money or whatever. So even the Jewish people, God bless them. Have you ever seen a rabbi on television talk about prison camps in China? Never. I've, I've, I've never seen But it. that rabbi certainly knows about Auschwitz, and, and therefore just the knowledge of it doesn't seem to... The idea that if we know about it, it won't happen again doesn't hold water to me. If, no, we, know about I, it, I would, I would... if we know about it, it's probably more likely to happen again because... People will be inspired by it. Hitler was inspired by the Armenian genocide. Listen, yeah. there, there is a limit to right. there is a limit to the like sincere empathy that we have as people and sympathy for other people. And maybe the way we're so complacent about the million people now, that, I don't know if they're being exterminated, but I'm sure many of them are dying in those concentration camps in China. Uh, maybe we should be less judgmental of how the world was so casual about the Jews being taken into concentration camps. We're not we're not handling it with much more concern. Well, I'm sure people, human nature is exactly the same. That's right. Whatever is happening now there, or with the Kurds, you know, there's a few days where, like, they're worried about the Kurds, and suddenly, like, it's not interesting enough to talk about every day, but I'm sure right now 
there are atrocities happening against the Kurds and people just drift off because there's a new uh, season of 90 Day Fiance. Yeah, I, I think if it's not either <laughs> you or your people or, or your country, uh, most people yeah. don't really care. And uh, then, you know, this is getting back to the Shandling book. You know, whether you're a, a Buddhist lady. or not, you know, we are all in this together where, whether we want to admit it or not. And when we're not... When we tune out to other people's pain and other people's communities, that's when we die off. I mean, like we only survive making sacrifices together for the environment, for the people in prison camps. And when we're in competition and tribal, it, it all caves in. All right, we're going to end. Yeah, so I'll tell you one thing. Yasha Malk, you know Yasha Malk is a writer for the um, – he's your kind of guy. He's a, he's a pretty liberal writer for The Atlantic, very, very smart. Um, he says something really interesting. I asked, he came to Altry, and I, and I, I, it was some stories about all these people who enlisted in the army in the Civil War, whatever it was. And I, and I asked him, do you think you would have, do you have to do that right this second? Do you think, do you think you would have the physical bravery to go and fight in a war, like voluntarily sign up to go for war? I mean, to me, I would just never. And he said, he said, no, I wouldn't think I would have it. He says, but history teaches us that that kind of bravery is much, much more common than to bravery to stand up for what you believe in against your peers. And, I, and that really stayed with me, that actually in times of war, like it's camaraderie, everybody gets together and we're gonna go fight this together. But like the lone person in the Soviet Union or in the Jordan McCarthy era, McCarthy era who was gonna stand up and, and say the opposite is apparently a much rarer kind of sure. bravery. That's why it's terrifying when Trump was like, let's unmask the whistleblower. Because he's trying to say, if you are that person, we will always find you and destroy you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know why they're still looking for the whistleblower. We have that, like, it's, it and reminds me of like, if, if yeah. my wife catches me cheating, Yeah. Wait, honey, you don't know. The whistleblower was out to get them. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck does that matter? <laughs> but who told you? Oh, okay, honey, you're right. I, apo I, well, I think apologize. people go to war because in many instances, if you don't go to war, especially in like World War II when everybody went, <sighs> yeah. for the rest of your life, you're a coward. No. I think people go to war because there's nothing else they can right. do. We, we got to wrap it up. I, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to Little Shop of Horrors. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Okay. Wait, first of all, the book, when is it coming out? The book is coming out, uh, I think, in a couple of days, and you can pre-order it on uh, any of the uh, massive uh, sites. And this is a book to cherish for a lifetime. This is not something you get on Kindle. That's it's right. not available on Kindle. It's it like an art book. It's got beautiful photographs. Beautiful artwork. And it will change your life. And it will change your life. And the Pete I'm Davidson movie coming out. June, uh, mid-June. Mid-June. And, and, and the Great Depression. Add, add to his, to Judd's credit, historian. Histor I like oh, that. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Comedy it's going to be. Thank you. That's true. Comedian, I'm director, like writer, producer, historian. Robert Carroll of comedy. Very yes. good. Ah, okay, good night, everybody. That? Thanks, guys.